Good morning again. If you have your Bibles, if you would, open them up to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Kevin and and, uh, Greg will get one to you. You Follow along with us. Revelation, chapter 1. We're going to look at just two verses today, verse 7 and 8. We're also going to look at Revelation 22, 20, but you don't need to turn there. We'll have that one up on the screen for you. But Revelation 1, verse 7 and 8 this morning. That's the Lord calling. (laughs) Haven't heard from you in a while. (laughs) Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then Revelation 22.20 says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The title of my message this morning is Maranatha. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, this opportunity to gather together as your church, Knowing, Holy Spirit, that you are here to teach us in all things, Lord, that pertain to life and godliness as we look to your word, as we look to what you have to say to us. Father, we do pray if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to come into a personal relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, that their eyes would be open and they would see their need for that relationship. But Lord, help us to glean all that you have for us today as we look at what you have for us today. We commit our time to you now. I ask that you would bless it. Bless our children downstairs as they are being taught your word at this very moment as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maranatha. Perhaps you've heard this word before. Maybe you haven't. Back in 1971, Jesus' music became very popular among all the hippies that were getting saved and coming to Christ. And Pastor Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, started what's called Maranatha Music because he wanted to continue to to focus on what these kids were singing about, what these kids were all talking about, and that was the soon return of Jesus Christ. There were bumper stickers that were made up, and you'd see them all around, around the back of the car that said, Maranatha, there's one we put up on the screen for you, kind of got this little font that kind of looks kind of 70-ish type of thing. There's a great move of God's Spirit back then. Even Time Magazine did a cover called The Jesus Revolution. Talked about the move of Christ during that time. And the focus was on Jesus and the lives that were being changed. But their hope was in the soon return of Jesus Christ. I would say that was the last great revival we had in America. There were bumper stickers that said, Turn or burn. Remember those if you've been walking with the Lord for a while? Then the other ones that said, one way. Or Jesus freak. And you know, you were happy to be called a Jesus freak. Christians, young folks from all over, they, they, they would point one way and they were looking up excited for the soon return of Jesus. People, believers in the early 70s, knew what the word Maranatha meant. 
This word Maranatha is an Aramaic expression transliterated into Greek meaning, Come, Lord Jesus. And here in verse 7, we have the announcement. In verse 7, Behold, He is coming. What is your reaction? Is it Maranatha, come Lord Jesus? Now today, today that announcement, Behold, He is coming, generates three different reactions depending on your relationship with Jesus Christ. Number one, if you know Jesus and love Jesus and you're walking with Jesus, your reaction is going to be, Maranatha, yes, Lord, come quickly. Number two, if you don't know Jesus and if you don't love Jesus and if you're not walking with him today, then your reaction might be, oh, not today, okay, I'm not ready. But what's worse is maybe you have that third reaction, which is unbelief. Yeah, right. People have been saying that since, since the 70s. And, and uh, you know, it's not going to happen. You know, I have too much to worry about to be concerned with Jesus coming back. That reaction of unbelief and indifference is the worst. Worst place a person can be, that of indifference. And sadly, there are many today that are in that place. In fact, Peter warned us that this would be that way in the last days when he said, 2 Peter 3, verse 3 and 4, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, whatever reaction you have towards Jesus coming back doesn't change the fact. Jesus is coming back. And that's really the theme of the book of Revelation. Jesus is coming. Who? Jesus. Remember the word revelation means the unveiling. It's the lifting of the veil to reveal Jesus. I love Pastor John MacArthur's description of the book of Revelation. He says this, and I quote, Anyone who loves books with action, books with excitement, will certainly love the book of Revelation. There's absolutely no book like it. It's loaded with drama. It's loaded with suspense. It is loaded with mystery, passion, horror, disaster upon disaster. It tells, for example, of the coming story of the apostasy of the church. It tells of the collapse of world economics. It tells of the final war of the world. It tells of the unparalleled natural disasters. It tells of the final judgment of the wrath of God. It speaks of bloodbaths. Political conflict that opens the way for a wicked, hellish world ruler to take over. It speaks of the total destruction of the entire universe and the damnation of both the bodies and souls of people to eternal hell. It is a book of unbelievable excitement, and yet amazingly, it is a book of hope and a book of joy and a book with a happy ending. Why? Because it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Now, if you're taking notes, we're going to see... Three things this morning. Number one, what is the second coming? Number two, who does Jesus say he is? And number three, what are we going to do about it? First, what is the second coming? See, the book of Revelation is all about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Let's read verse 7 again. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so... Amen. Now I want to point out three things when it comes to Jesus returning to this earth. I know Pastor Bruce has covered it pretty well on Wednesday evening, but, but it never hurts to go over it again. Three different events that speak of Jesus coming to the earth. 
First and foremost, Jesus came the first time to save. Luke 19.10 tells us, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came the first time as a man, clothed in humility, to give himself as a ransom for many, a sacrifice for us. He came to establish his church. But the Bible also teaches that Jesus will come a second time for his church. In fact, he said very clearly in John 14, 1 through 3, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So he said he's going to come back, receive uh, you and me, the church, so that where he is, we will be also. But the Bible goes so far as to say how he's going to do that. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together in, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. That event is called, is known as the rapture of the church. The word caught up in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 is a Greek word harpezo, means to be snatched away, caught up. It's a Latin word, rapturo, where we get our English word rapture from. People say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, if you understand the original language, it is. But notice what happens. We read, we shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. See, Jesus isn't returning to this earth at this point uh, to put his feet on the ground. His feet's not going to touch the ground. He's returning in the clouds. See, the Bible says it's going to be like a thief in the night. It's going to be in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, that we as born-again believers will be snatched out of here, raptured. So Jesus' first coming was to seek and to save those who were lost. The second coming, he'll return in the clouds, a second time to receive the church so that where he is, we, we will also be. And I believe that day is fast approaching. But then that leads to a third return of Jesus Christ, Jesus will come a third time at his, known as the second coming. And I want to point out that, that it's second because it's the second time that Jesus will actually set his feet down upon the earth. At the second coming, Jesus will set his feet on the, on the Mount of Olives, as Zechariah 14.4 tells us, and that the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west. So they're going to know it when Jesus sets his feet down on the ground. In fact, uh, look at Revelation 19:11 through 14 up on the screen. This is how it'll happen. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. I can't wait to get to Revelation 19. But there we have it. A complete description of the second coming of Christ to this earth. Now notice who is with them. Verse 14. The armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's the church. Clean and white because our sins have been washed away through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
He came to save us and die for us, to make us whole, to cleanse us from all of our sins, to clothe us with His robe of righteousness. We are clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And we're coming back with Jesus on white horses. Maybe the Bonanza theme is going to be playing in the background. Kevin, this is cool. (laughs) This is all right. Don't get thrown off. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Sorry, Chuck. Matthew 24:30. Jesus says this: Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now coming on the clouds can be a reference to literal clouds or it could be the Shekinah glory that we read about when Moses came down from the mountain and, and, and he was shown, you know. But some also believe this refers to the church. Hebrews 12.1 in speaking about the great men and women of faith calls it such a, a great cloud of witnesses. And we certainly study together in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So when we speak of Jesus' return to the earth, it will be first for the church in the air, and then with us when he returns to the earth in what is known as the second coming of Christ. But notice what takes place when that happens in verse 7. We read, Every eye will see him, even, John writes, those that pierced him. Now that is a reference to the Jewish people. Listen to Zechariah 12, verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierce. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. You know, that's one of the most difficult passages for the Jews to explain away. How can God... Be pierced. How can God be pierced? I mean, God, Jehovah, is speaking to his people and he says, they will look on me whom they pierced. Pierced means to strike through and wound. How could almighty God, Jehovah, be struck through and pierced? Only if he came to this earth in human flesh, which he did the first time, Jesus Christ. The apostle John quotes this in his gospel as referring to Jesus in John 19.37, when he says, and again another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. And here in verse 7 of Revelation 1, those that pierced him. There will come a day, there will come a time when the nation of Israel realize what they have done. And they will cry, when they realize what they've done when they cried out, crucify him. They will realize what they've done when they said his blood be upon us and upon our children. We're told in Zechariah 13, 6, and one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Then he will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. You see, the Jews, those who will survive the seven-year great tribulation, will look upon Jesus and understand that he was and is the Messiah that they had been looking for. Just as it was prophesied in Psalm 22:16, they pierced my hands and my feet. Just as it was prophesied in Isaiah 53:5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. God's piercing took place as he hung there upon that cross as his hands and his feet were pierced. And there will come a time when they will recognize him as the one their ancestors sent to his crucifixion. 
fact, we're told in, in 1 John 1, 11, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. Jesus came as their Jewish Messiah, their Jewish Redeemer, but they rejected Him. They crucified Him. But praise God that God had never given up upon the Jewish people, and He will not give up on them now. And we'll see in our future studies in the book of Revelation just that. But we'll also see, and I want to point this out and say this before we move on, we are going to see in this day and age more and more attacks against the nation of Israel and against Jewish people in particular. Because the Bible says that, that Israel will stand alone in the last days, Zechariah 12:3, And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away would surely be cut in pieces, though all the nations of the earth are gathered against it. So it's well established that anti-Semitism is at its all-time high right now. According to the ADL, the Audit of Anti-Semitic Incidents, they found that the total number of anti-Semitic incidents in 2009 increased 12% over the previous year with a disturbing 56% increase in assaults. The audit found that there were, on average, as many as six anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. for each day in the calendar year the highest level of anti-Semitic activity ever recorded by the ADL. This, the, the year included five fatalities directly linked to anti-Semitic violence and another 91 individuals targeted in physical assaults. Incidents were, were reported in every one of the 48 contiguous United States and Washington, D.C. More than half of the assaults nationwide took place in the five boroughs of New York City, including 25 in Brooklyn alone. They said this was a year of unprecedented anti-Semitic activity, a time when many Jewish communities across the country had direct encounters with hate. It's only going to get worse. I want to add that I believe we are nearing the very event spoken of in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 as a conglomeration of predominantly Muslim countries, including Russia and Turkey and Iran, will decide to come down and destroy Israel once and for all. To wipe them off the map yet, map, yet God is going to supernaturally intervene, destroy five-sixths of this invading army. And shortly right after that event, or maybe right before that event, I believe the rapture of the church will take place, and then that seven-year great tribulation period will begin. Then at the end of that seven years, Jesus returns, and we read that every eye will see him, including those in Israel, those who pierced him. See, God is going to deal with the nation of Israel one more time and bring them back to that point of recognizing Jesus as their Messiah. And they'll mourn, but they will be saved. And notice again this about the second coming in verse 7. It does say, every eye will see him. And that certainly is not talking about the rapture because Jesus said that would come as a thief in the night. Millions of believers will be stolen, taken off this world. But when the Bible says, every eye shall see him, I believe that it means every eye will see him. That's what the Bible says. God will supernaturally enable every person on earth and in heaven and in Hades to see Jesus', Jesus return right at that moment. Listen to Matthew twenty four twenty seven. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Matthew twenty four thirty. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with, with power and great glory. Jesus came the first time in humility in order to deal with man's sin. 
He's coming the second time with power and glory to deal with unrepentant sinners. And every one of us here this morning fall into one of those two groups. One group who sees Him as our Savior and our Lord, and according to verse 5, who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. Or the other group in verse 7, described as facing judgment. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. There's only two places. There's no middle ground. Jesus put it this way, you're either for me or you are against me. So Jesus is going to return. Where will you stand? Are you ready? Because when Jesus will return, because he promised to do so. And when God promises something, you can bet your bottom dollar that it's going to happen. Why? Because we have his word on it. So five aspects of Jesus' return here in verse 7. First, it's personal. Jesus himself is going to return. Second, it's public. Every eye will see him. Third, it's prestigious. He's coming in clouds and in majesty. Fourth, his coming will be painful. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. And fifth, it's positive. Even so, amen. So be it, Maranatha. Now that brings us to point number two. Who does Jesus say that he is? Well, look at verse eight. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That is one of the best verses on the deity of Jesus Christ that we have. And I love that Jesus makes it absolutely clear that what he says will happen just the way that he says it will happen. He makes it very clear that he's in complete control of what's going on by the three titles that he gives himself. First, he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega. Had he been speaking in English, he might say, I'm I'm the A to Z. He says, I'm the beginning and the end. Words recorded by the prophet Isaiah help us understand what that means. Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last besides me. There is no God. See, by claiming to be the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus wants us to know that He is everything that we need in this life. We don't need to turn to anyone or anything else for help. Not alcohol, not drugs, not pornography, not even our bank account. Second title Jesus gives himself is the one who is and who was and who is to come. When we read who is, that would be the present time. He is the glorified Christ. When we read who was, was the past. Jesus is first coming as Savior and Deliverer. And then when we read who is to come, it's the second coming of Jesus Christ to rule and to reign forever. See, that title not only emphasizes the eternal nature of Jesus, but it reminds us how absolutely constant he is. You know, his, his power never suffered blackouts. I think last month, within two weeks, our power went out like four times. We go, what is going on? No, that doesn't happen with the Lord. He doesn't love you any less today than he did yesterday. He doesn't love you any less when you blow it and sin against him. If you lost your temper at your boss at work, it grieves the Holy Spirit but, but he doesn't love you any less. If you took the, the name of the Lord in vain, it grieves the Holy Spirit, but he doesn't love you any less. If you just went through the motions as we were worshiping this morning, when we were singing, God still loves you the same. We know that his love is constant because John described Jesus as the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, again in verse 5. That truth then is emphasized by the third title that Jesus gave himself in verse 8, which is the Almighty. See, there's no problem too big for Jesus to handle. 
There's no sickness he can't cure. No loneliness that he can't overcome. So can we really count on this promise? Absolutely. Because that word almighty translates the ancient Greek word pantocrator literally to the one who has all power. All powerful. Or the one who controls everything. Or the one who commands all things and all people. It speaks of God's sovereign control. Uh, it speaks of the great sovereign control of Jesus over everything, past, present, and future. See, we serve a God in control of time and a God beyond time and space. Psalm 90 verse 4 tells us, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past. Listen, right now we are on God's timetable, God's schedule. And how different His schedule is than ours. I mean, if it was my schedule, I would have wanted Jesus to come back 40 years ago when I first gave my life to the Lord. But a lot of you wouldn't even be here because of that. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And not only is God's thoughts than our thoughts, His ways than our ways, but His timing, again, is not our timing. And once we enter into that eternal realm, you know, we're not going to have cell phones with our Google calendars on it and, and having to keep our little appointments and noticing when people are late. Oh, we're on Calvary time. That's when we're late, you know. Got the schedule I got to keep up. You know, why? Because we're going to be in the supernatural, eternal realm. I love that line from Amazing Grace that says it best. When we've been there 10,000 years bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days of seeing God's praise than when we first begun. I love Chuck Swindoll's illustration of eternity. He puts it this way. He says, imagine if you have a steel ball, solid steel, the size of the earth, 25,000 miles in circumference, and every one million years, a little sparrow would be released to land on that ball to sharpen its beak and begin again. By the time he would have worn that ball down to the size of a BB, eternity would have just begun. I mean, that blows your mind. <laughs> and because in our human mind, and in our understanding, we draw a line and we say, here's time. Here's, here's the year I was born. This is the year a person dies. And beyond that is eternity. Before that is infinity. And just because a line that keeps growing longer and longer on both sides. But that's our understanding of time. But in God's understanding, there's no line drawn. He transcends time in the time domain this physicist would refer to. God's outside of time. Who is and was and is to come the Almighty. God looks at time and it has no relevance in because time itself is relative. It's not absolute. Listen to what Peter said in 2 Peter 3, verse 8 and 9. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some account slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What Peter does is he takes the time to help us understand that in our lives as believers, there needs to be a sense of urgency concerning the time that we're living in. Understanding that the time is short. In fact, James would mention it in his short little letter that, that our lives are like a, a vapor. It's here for a while and it just vanishes. It's a vapor. Your life, 70 or 80 years old, they have James likens it to the midst of vapor. You know, when we look at the rest of the inhabitants of the earth, 
it seems like we as human beings are the only ones that are really having this hassle with time. I think about this cat that we used to have. Her name was Tinkerbell. We called her Tink. No, she was never really concerned about what time it was unless it was dinner time. She was not worried about anything else. During her day, all she did was lie around and sleep here and sleep there. And if that place wasn't comfortable, then she'd sleep over here. She'd move someplace else. So that bothers me about cats. Because I have a busy schedule. I have appointments to keep. I have meetings. I have demands. And I'm rushing to the house and moving from one room to the other. And I look at the cat and it's just lying there. It's like, why don't you get up and go do something? Go kill a mouse or something or catch a bird. What do you imagine just lying there like that? She had no concept of time whatsoever. In the same way, you know, when you look at the birds, you know, they're not in a hurry. Now, they may take off, you know, oh, they're, they're in a hurry to get some food. No, they go on this wire and this branch over here and back to that branch over there. And that's all they do all day and night. They're just, just spent wasting time. Now, if this principle is true, then those that waste time are more like the life of an animal instead of a born-again believer. Because, you see, the born-again believer, the one who has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, realizes that we've been given just a short amount of time. And we should have this sense of urgency concerning time, understanding we don't have much of it. And the time that we do have, we need to be doing something with it. Jesus is coming back, and our time is short. And that does bring us to our third point. What are we to do about it? What are we to do as we await Jesus' return? What are we to do with the time that we have left? How are we to live until he returns? You know, it's interesting. The Bible doesn't say anything about collecting gold and water and food and automatic weapons as we await his return. The Bible is very specific Uh, and things that it says we ought to be engaged with as Christians looking for him to return. In fact, Jesus tells us we need to occupy till he comes. In Luke 19, Jesus tells a parable, a story to illustrate this. And in the story, it's a story of a wealthy man who is going to take a long trip, and he calls his servants together, and he gave each of them a sum of money, and he says to them, occupy till I come. That's the old King James. Another way to translate that is to invest until I come back. So he gave him this measure of money. Invest this wisely until I return. Now Christ has ascended into heaven. He is going to come back to this earth. What are we supposed to be doing as we wait his return? We're to occupy till he returns. We're to invest till he returns. What is, what is at least one thing Jesus has given to every man and every woman? Well, we all have our lives, of course. That's a gift from God. We have our resources. We have our, our time. But we've all been given something as followers of Jesus Christ, and that is a commission. We've been given a great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Paul described it in 1 Timothy 1 as a glorious gospel committed to his trust. And then he re-mentions it again in 1 Thessalonians 2.4, how he was entrusted with the gospel. You and I have been entrusted with this sacred trust. You've been given a commission We have been given a commission to occupy until he comes. That means we want to use every opportunity we can to get the gospel out to as many people as we possibly can. That's occupy until he comes. But there's another thing we we need to be doing as we wait for the Lord's return. And Peter lets us know what that is. 
when he writes in 2 Peter 3, verse 11, he writes, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Because this earth is going to pass away, because this earth is only a temporary place for a temporary time, Peter says, hey, live a holy and godly lifestyle. You know, Jesus put it this way, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey me. Proof that we love the Lord is, is our obedience. There must be obedience to the Lord in our lives if we're going to win others for Christ. Peter says, we know we're living in the last days of human history and that men, or rather he says, knowing that we're living in the last days of human history, knowing that men are going to perish for all eternity, your life, my life, needs to be marked with holiness and godliness. Holy conduct and godliness describe your daily activities. Holy means to be set apart. Uh, it's keeping yourself away from sin. Godliness is the more positive uh, way of looking at it. It's deliberately living in a way that's pleasing God. See, I believe the reason the church is so weak today is because many Christians are playing with sin and, and, and rather than abhorring it or resisting it. They're deceived by sin. They enjoy it. They cling to it, yet they profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. And the real tragedy is seen in their lives because they can't live in both worlds. They have no joy. They have no peace. And worst of all, there's no fruit in their lives. I'm told that there's some parts of, in some parts of the world there's a tree which has been named a Judas tree because of its deceitfulness. It's, it's these beautiful red flowers that attract bees by the millions, but the nectar inside contains an opiate that is deadly to them as evidenced by the piles of dead bees at the base of every Judas tree. What a perfect description of the deceitfulness of sin. It's good to the eye, but deadly to the soul. It's for that reason that we need the wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit to discern good from evil, to surrender ourselves completely to, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and live in holiness. In fact, God says very clearly in Leviticus 11.45, For I am the Lord your God, he says, You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So the Lord says, knowing, in the days which we live, knowing the return is near, occupy till he comes, share the gospel, get the gospel out. Then he says, our lives need to be marked by holiness, to be separate from the world. Our lives should be like night and day with those that don't know the Lord. There should be a big difference. Finally, one last thing about occupying until Jesus comes, and we need to cover this, is how we as Christians should relate to government mandates, local and federal quarantines, masks, church services. I feel, feel we need to address this. So for that, it'd probably be better if you could turn with me to Romans 13, first four verses there. You can read it up on the screen. It might be clearer uh, if you can turn to it. Romans chapter 13. Paul writes this. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Now remember... In that passage, Paul is talking to born-again believers, and he says, 
Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Governing authorities refer to the government or state or local authorities that preside over us. Now, you may say, well, you know, Paul didn't have to deal with things that we have to deal with today. I mean, they didn't have COVID-19 back then. Or even what would be COVID-01. I don't know. They didn't have to deal with all these left-wing politicians that are pushing our society towards Marxism and socialism. I mean, if Paul was around, he wouldn't have written those words. Paul just doesn't understand. No, when Paul wrote those words, he was under the Roman governor Caesar Nero. And we're told through church history that after sentencing the apostle Paul to death, Nero went on a rampage, persecuting Christians, burning them in the garden, feeding them to lions. Caesar Nero was a diabolic, terrible, brutal, evil individual. Yet here, while Nero is in power, Paul says believers were to be subject to the governing authorities, even though they restricted them in many ways and persecuted them. But, you say, this is the United States of America. We're supposed to be a democracy. We're supposed to have leaders that we, we the people, elect. This is tyranny. We're a government for the people and by the people and of the people. And I agree 100%. And we should be involved in politics and selecting godly leaders, individuals that would lead this country of ours. But here's Paul's point. He says, there's no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. God has designed human government because of man's sin. And man needs restraint from sin. Man needs to be under some authority so human government is ordained by God. And that does not mean that all forms of government are godly. Or that all government officials are godly. Far from it. Or that every government law, mandate, or policies are good. There are those dictators. There are those wicked men and women, even demonic, that are in governmental positions of authority today passing horrible laws and decisions that are being made. But the institution, the concept of government or men ruling over others is something that the Bible says God has ordained. Now, let me say this. Sometimes those authorities are appointed for God's judgment to come. Other times it's for God's blessing. But you see, God ultimately is control of the nations. The authorities that exist are appointed by God. And those nations that recognize that are the nations that have experienced the blessings of God and the hand of God upon them, as we have been, the United States have experienced for so many years God's blessing. But it can all change in, in a moment. Paul goes on to say in verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So does that mean, that verse mean that we're always to obey those who are in authority over us, no matter what they say? Great question for today. The clearest answer is absolutely not. Acts chapter 5, the Pharisees told Peter not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And Peter said, we're going to obey God rather than obeying man. So there is a time when we're not to be subject to those in authority. But we need to have proper understanding of Scripture to back up our disobedience. I can't just say, I don't like driving 65, I want to drive 95, and I'm going to obey God over man because I don't like, I don't want to drive that slow. I, you know, uh, I don't like seatbelts. I don't like that law. I don't like stop signs. I don't like that law. Listen, make sure you have scriptural context and rightly dividing the word to back up what you're doing. Then I say, go for it. You see, it's only when man's laws contradict God's laws 
that we have to obey God's law. But we need to be very discerning and very careful to make sure that we indeed are breaking man's law in order to keep God's law. Otherwise, there's no basis for breaking the law. Listen, if our government tells us we can't pray, then we're going to break the law. We're going to be like Daniel. We're going to pray. If they tell us you can't worship singing and pray songs anymore, we're going to break the law. If they tell us you can't congregate anymore like they did in California, then we're going to break the law. Like in China, where it's illegal for them to congregate or to assemble together in their own churches unless it's a recognized governmental church. They break the law. They meet underground. They meet in homes. God in uh, and spreading the word of God in countries, uh, rather going in and spreading the word of God in countries where it's illegal to pass out Bibles or it's against the law to share the gospel. Those are places where Christians are, you know, disobey the civil authorities. Because we have a higher law that supersedes their law. God calls us to preach the gospel. He calls us to spread the good news, to get the word out, to pray and to seek him. Now as we close, let's address the elephant in the room. Let's address the face masks. Something that the, you know, the, the, our, our city council voted on in Springfield City that, that we have to wear. You know, is that something that is against the word of God? Well, you know, Moses put a veil on his face to hide God's Shekinah glory when he spoke to the people. But when he spoke to God, he, he removed the veil. And I really tried to stretch that verse to make it apply. <laughs> I, I could probably, if I, I say this, I, but I would say, you know what? Wearing a mask is not sinful. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, do not wear a mask when you meet together. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, when you meet together, wear a mask. Now, the problem I have with masks is the mandate itself and not giving the choice to the people, as well as understanding how the law versus mandates apply. Is mandating everyone to wear a mask lawful? Is it constitutional? There's a strong debate going on right now over, on both sides of the issue. Very strong emotions are brought up as well. But we need to understand, oftentimes, there are federal laws that conflict with local laws and state laws. So since there's so much confusion on the subject, who do you listen to? Is it infringing on the church's right to assemble? Is it a violation of the First Amendment? I have my opinion, but, but I can't say again to those questions with certainty. Will it lead to other things that the government will want to control in the lives of the people? More than likely. Folks, we're living in the last days. What do you expect? It's going to get worse. But you see, here's what it comes down to. Do wearing a mask violate God's law? No, it doesn't. Now, certainly as Americans, there does come a time when we need to stand up against the government, when the government is no longer following its own constitution, But we are Christians first and Americans second. And balancing that can be difficult at times. My patriotism says, I am free. I have my rights. I shouldn't be forced to wear a mask. But my faith says, you know, there are times I need to humble myself and give up my rights in order to serve and love others just as Jesus did. Galatians 5.13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Paul goes on in Romans 13.8. Oh, no one except anything but 
Oh, no one anything except to love one another, for you loves another, has fulfilled the law. So my answer is, here at Calvary Temple Springfield, we leave it up to the individual to allow God to show you what to do concerning masks. You have that choice. Now, because there is so much disagreement on the whole view on masks, I have asked our ushers, I've asked our greeters to wear them if they don't have health reasons not to. So when people come into the door, they can be welcome. They'll see, hey, they, I, I can come in comfortably because I have a thing about masks. I want to wear a mask. They have masks on. I can come in comfortably and, and they can come in. And so I've asked them to do it, not forcing them, just asked them to do it and, and, and they've agreed to do it. Listen, everyone has here's their own opinion about this as well. It's just helping people to feel welcome as they come into the church in case mask wearing is really important to them. Now, with that said, I tried it. I can't worship with a mask on. <laughs> My glasses theme up. I'm distracted. I can't do it. I've got to take the thing off. And, and you're probably like that as well. And I take them off. And there, again, there are times where we can disobey those civil authorities. But if anything, the Bible tells us we need to be praying for those in authority. First and foremost, 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. See, we as a church need to be careful living in these last days, waiting for the Lord's return, that we don't get so wrapped up in politics and in these issues that we lose our priorities. We lose our focus. Our priority is the gospel. Our focus is Jesus Christ and getting the message out of salvation to a dying world. Our mission, our church, our goal is to be a worshiping church that builds mature disciples to evangelize the lost for the glory of God. And in the process, our prayer is that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Especially now that we see the day of the Lord approaching. It's only going to be a short time before the end of the age and and it's over. We're all going to find ourselves face to face with eternity. And the question God is going to ask us is not whether you wore a mask or not, but what did you do with my son Jesus Christ? Were you born again? Are your sin forgiven? And that really is the question right now as we get ready to close, as we get ready for Jesus' return. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never asked Him to forgive you of your sins, you're not ready. You're not ready for His his return. And I would pray that you would get ready, that you would get right with Christ today. Time is short. Jesus is coming back. I pray your response is, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. If you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, if you're here and you never have a sooner service is over, come up and talk to me. I'll even put a mask on if you want. I just want you to give your life to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for your power in our lives. You are our protector, our healer, our strength. Lord, you have all wisdom, all knowledge, and you give to us, Lord, what we need when we ask you and we seek you, Lord. Help us as your church to apply your word to our lives, to our situations, that we might serve you, Lord, quietly, peaceably, in all godliness and reverence. Lord, that we would honor you with everything we do in our lives, that we would be that example to those that love you, an example to those 
that, 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 uh, that don't know you, Lord, that they would see something in us and, and, and inquire of that because of our love. Your word says that they'll know we are Christians by the love we have one for another. Lord, help that to be Lord, our mantra, what we do, Lord, that we show that love one for another, your love that you've given to us. Thank you, God, for, for the great grace you've shown us. Fill us with your spirit. Give us wisdom in these days in which we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's all stand and we'll do one last song together.